We see about three-quarters of a million pediatric patients annually with traumatic head injury in EDs across North America. Now, that's a lot of kids. While most of these kids will be fine regardless of what we do in the ED, even minor pediatric head injury can be deadly, investigating is not without risk, and there may be long-term consequences even with minor bonks. The signs can be devilishly subtle. I mean, validated scores include points for, quote, agitation, irritability, and repetitive questioning. Show me a two-year-old who doesn't do this at baseline. With me today, we have Sarah Reed, pediatric EM doc at Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario in our nation's capital, who brings us her fantastic pediatric EM quick hits every couple of months, and new to EM cases, pediatric EM researcher and doc also from Ottawa, Roger Zemek. Together, we'll unpack pediatric minor head trauma and help you hone your decision-making skills and confidence when faced with the child who's bonked their head. Now, whether you're a medical student, resident, or staff doc, you need to have a rock-solid approach to pick out the high-risk patient with minor head injury, to identify those at risk for long-term sequelae, to use imaging responsibly, and to ensure ongoing appropriate care for the concussed kid after they leave the ED. So, we're going to discuss when it's best to use the CATCH-2 rule instead of the PCARN rule, if fast MRI has any value, and how to manage persistent concussion symptoms for the child who was jumping on the bed and fell off, even if it was his older brother's idea. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. So let's just jump into our first case. A mother presents to the ED with her nine-month-old male infant who fell down four steps onto a concrete sidewalk while in a stroller that had overturned. She reports that he cried immediately, did not vomit, and did not have a seizure. The infant is otherwise healthy with no previous head injuries or significant medical history. On exam, he's alert and crying. His vitals are all normal. His GCS is 15 with equal and reactive pupils. He's actively moving his neck in all directions without any signs of pain. He's moving all his limbs normally. Full exposure of the infant reveals a 3-centimeter boggy occipital hematoma. There are no signs of basal skull fracture and no signs of injury of the chest, abdomen, back, or limbs. So let's first define what we mean by minor head injury. The classification of pediatric head injury is divided into minor, moderate, and severe, which are defined by GCS cutoffs on first assessment in the ED. Severe being a GCS of 8 or less, moderate a GCS of 9 to 13, and minor a GCS of 14 to 15. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about the biggest category by far, the minor head injury patient, which for our purposes is really defined as an injury within the past 24 hours associated with either a loss of consciousness or amnesia or witness disorientation, uh, persistent vomiting or persistent irritability, and again, a GCS score of 14 or 15. And to be clear, we're not talking about the so-called 
trivial head trauma, a little bonk to the head with zero signs or symptoms. Now, we need to get a sense of how often we should expect to find a serious intracranial lesion on imaging in the child with minor head injury. So, Dr. Zemek, first, how often does routine head imaging identify important intracranial lesions after a minor head injury? So, fortunately, this is something that is quite rare. Most kids who present with those initial symptoms, as you described, either some vomiting or some confusion or some disorientation, most of those kids do not have significant findings on a CT or other type of advanced neuroimaging. So when they looked at uh, large cohort studies, either the PCARN study, which was done in the U.S., which had over 40,000 people, or the large Canadian study, which was the CATCH and CATCH-2 studies, the overall ballpark rate of having any finding on that CT is only about 5%. But when you look at a clinically important outcome, and the way the PCARN study had done that was they defined this as needing neurosurgery, leading prolonged intubation, inpatient hospitalizations beyond two days, or obviously the worst outcome of death, the overall incidence of those is only about 1%. All right. So clinically important outcomes, only about 1%. So I think that's important to put things into perspective here. Dr. Reed, when you're assessing a patient with minor head injury in the eMERGE, what do you want to know on history, and in particular, to help you identify the ones who might be at high risk for one of these clinically important outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think we really want to hear exactly what happened. Like with any injured child, you really want to be able to picture exactly what, what the mechanism of injury is. You want to make sure that that fits with the developmental stage of the child when we, you know, we always have to think about child maltreatment uh, for any injured child. So that's going to be important. We want to get a sense whether this was a severe mechanism. So, you know, the two big studies that we've already mentioned, the CATCH and CATCH2 and PCARN, um, you know, they have, they have criteria for what severe or, you know, a significant injury or high risk mechanism is. So was this an MVC with an ejection of a passenger, a death of another passenger, a rollover? Was this a child who was a pedestrian or on a bike without a helmet and struck by a, a motorized vehicle? Did the child fall? And if they did fall, how, how many feet did they fall? It sort of matters how old they are in terms of how, how far you're allowed to fall before it becomes a high risk mechanism. And if they fell down the stairs, how many stairs, for example? If they were hit by an object, was it sort of a, like a high impact or high velocity object? So really picturing the mechanism. So you have to spend a bit of time there. You're going to want to know from the parent, is the child acting normally? Are they back to normal? Have they had any vomiting? Did they have any loss of consciousness? You know, what were they like at the time that the injury happened? And how have they been since then? You know, if you have a child who's a little bit older, you're going to want to ask all about their symptoms, right? And this maybe bleeds into, you know, what we'll talk about later in terms of concussion, but, you know, particularly around, you know, whether we're going to scan this kid or not, we're going to want to know if they have headache and if the headache is worsening, for example. And then it's probably quite similar to how you assess an older person in terms of just asking about symptoms of dizziness, any visual changes, uh, so those sorts of symptoms. But I think the key component really is getting a really good picture in your mind of exactly what the mechanism of injury is. I should add also, you know, if a parent describes, you know, their young child, their pre-verbal child, you know, that's a word we use for kids under the age of two, if the parent will often say their child's irritable or fussy, and you really need to dig into that. So is this a child who's just a bit fussy and wants their mom but settles easily in their mom's arms? 
Or is this a child who's persistently crying and cannot be settled by their caregiver? Because the presence of irritability in a, in a child under the age of two is a pretty significant neurological finding. So often I see physicians just falling back on the decision tools and then kind of forgetting to do a good history and physical. In the physical exam, what in particular are you looking for? I mean, we can't do a half-hour neurologic exam on every kid who bonks their head. What are the key things that you're looking for on physical exam in the kid with a head injury? So the first and foremost, uh, I know often in the ch- in pediatrics when we assess a child, one of the most important and overlooked things is the general appearance. Another thing is, is there a large boggy hematoma that may increase your suspicion that there's an s- underlying skull fracture? Do they seem to be following your direction? Are they able to track you? How are their vision and eye movements? How are they speaking to you if it's a verbal child? Are they answering questions slowly? Are they confused? Is their mental status affected? With regards to other elements that are in the PCARN and CATCH rules, signs of basal or skull fractures are really important. So is there a hemotympanum? Is there a battle sign? Um, those are important uh, things to look for. And we had mentioned earlier, again, the presence of a scalp hematoma. Many of these kids will have small hematomas, but they're often lo- localized and fairly firm. You're looking for something that's quite boggy. It's kind of like the the, the doughy type of palpation sensation that you would have when I call it the Pillsbury dough type of uh, depth and, and softness. And so a large one like that, that perhaps even crosses suture lines on, a, on an infant, those things are concerning. But something that's within a, a couple centimeters or smaller and is more fairly firm is more reassuring. All right. That's a great nuance about the hematoma. That's one that often confuses learners, I think, is exactly what kind of hematoma is considered a high-risk hematoma. In terms of the physical exam, you've beautifully gone over some of the things you're looking for in terms of high-risk factors that would trigger you to do a CT scan. What about the physical exam to determine whether the child is likely to have ongoing concussion symptoms after discharge? Absolutely. So in addition to the fact that there are clinical decision or prediction rules to help you decide whether to image a child, there are clinical prediction rules that exist to help determine how long a patient's concussion symptoms will last. We actually had a study that we led that was across nine centers across Canada. It was called the 5P study, and there were over 70 different things we looked at, elements of the physical exam, elements of history. And what was interesting is, although we did all these unique uh, assessments, some of the elements that were most associated with ongoing symptoms were the elements that had to do with balance. And so one key element of the assessment that's often not done in the emergency department is the assessment of balance. And as we move forward, and as more research indicates, is the assessment of even gait and how those interact with the vestibular ocular system, uh, because they're all integrated. So let's talk briefly about balance first. There is a validated balance assessment that's part of the SCAT, the sport concussion uh, assessment. And those are the tandem stance gait. And the there's a dual stance where both feet are standing side by side and the hands are on the hips and the eyes are closed. 
most people do really well with that. And those very rarely pick up deficits of balance. It's something though I do just to make sure they don't toddle over or fall over before I have them do the more advanced. So I more do that assessment briefly just to even assess for safety before I have them do a more challenging balance assessment. The other test I do is then what's called the tandem stance is when the patient's in front of me, I give them the quick little uh, scenario of pretend there's a little soccer ball in front of you and give it a kick. What that does is it determines for me which leg is a dominant leg. And so when they kick, I tell them, now stop. The leg that you just kicked with, I want that leg in front of the other and stand like you're, you're standing on either a tight rope or a balance beam. And so it's one foot in front of the other in a heel and toe position. And I have them uh, slightly bend their knees, put their hands on their hips and close their eyes. And for the next 20 seconds, I have them try to maintain that position. And I'm looking to see if they take their hands off their hips, if they sway too much, if they open their eyes. And what you would do is you just add up the number of errors they make. Now, if one person suddenly opens her eyes, takes a step and takes her hands off their hip in that one event... That's not three errors. It's one event. They get back in position as quickly as they can, and then you continue to count. Um, So you count the total number of events they have in the 20 seconds. In the most part, most children, just based on age development, the younger the child is, they still may have some errors as just because of an eight-year-old will. As they become into their teenage years, an unconcussed or a person with normal good balance should have zero errors. What we have found with the 5P study was that having four or more errors in those 20 seconds is associated with higher risk of having persistent symptoms. I use this as a teachable moment to families saying, now Timmy should not suddenly go ice skating again or ride his bike again because he may fall because his balance is still not quite right. And or this is a flag that this patient may need further uh, interdisciplinary care to treat a potential balance problem. We anticipate as part of the new concussion international guidelines, we will likely be incorporating dynamic gait assessment into the future SCAT. So we're at SCAT 5, the next SCAT 6, will incorporate an element of dynamic balance in that. So the way you do that is by doing dynamic gait, and it's a really fast test and can be done in most exam rooms or even in the hallway. And it's simply taking uh, five steps forward in a straight, as though, again, tight rope or balance beam type of uh, walking mechanism, kind of like the police walk walk the straight line. They do five steps with their eyes open, then five steps with their eyes closed forward. You then have them still face the same direction and say, now take five more steps backwards with your eyes open and five more steps backwards with the eyes closed continuously. So it's basically 10 steps forward, 10 steps back. Again, first half eyes open, second half eyes closed. I personally clinically am always surprised with the degree in which they're able to do a standing okay, but the minute you throw in a dynamic, the balance becomes much more challenging. And then lastly, the way you can then take this and see what might be the cause is often these people have some sort of vestibular and or ocular motor dysfunction. You make an H-shaped movement across the visual field, starting uh, to do the letter H, starting in one upper, for example, upper left or upper right, whatever's easier, quadrant, go down, 
back across the eyes and up uh, will allow you to see if eye tracking is proper. You can then have patients go look from side to side to see if there's any saccadic movements. Doing an up and down uh, quick tracking is again another one to do. You can do another assessment in which you hold both your fingers out about your own shoulder width and have the patient look from finger to finger across uh, quickly many times. And then again, change the orientation and have them look up and down many times. Um, Those are just some of the tests that can quickly bring out a disconjugate or a psychotic type of movement um, in the eye, which may normally trigger a concern that there's a stroke going on or some sort of more worrisome uh, problem, but it's often just part of the element of the initial concussion. And these things resolve in a couple weeks. The point being picking that up in the emergency room on day one or day two, when you're seeing these patients may really make a big difference in giving education to the patient that some of their symptoms may be worse when they try to read. Or if they're looking at their smartphone, it's going to be really hard to focus. Or doing video games may really elicit symptoms. And so bringing it to their attention that there is a dysfunction is, number one, important to give education on what activities they may or may be able to tolerate. And number two, it would be a red flag and something that would indicate further assessment in an interdisciplinary care team, which has either vestibular therapy or some sort of physiotherapy that can work on treating those symptoms. All right, great. So on physical exam, you're really looking at two separate groups of physical exam maneuvers. One is to assess whether they're at high risk for a clinically important outcome and require a CT scan. And then the other one is to assess their risk for having post-concussive syndrome so that you can counsel them appropriately in the, in that case. So we'll have those on the show notes in terms of exactly what tests to do. And I think it sounds like a long list of things, but I'm sure, uh, Dr. Zemek, you could probably do this physical exam in three minutes flat, right? Or less. I mean, the balance, again, it's 20 seconds uh, for the different stances. The gait takes, uh, again, 30 seconds to have them take the steps. And the eye movements, again, is maybe a minute total to do all the maneuvers. So exactly, Anton, uh, three minutes or less to do those key elements of the exam, which will really potentially dictate a different treatment plan for that patient. Great. And just backing up a little bit, this always seems to come up when I'm asking a resident what the GCS was of a child. And it's kind of becomes a little bit unclear of how exactly to assess the GCS. Uh, Dr. Reed, how do you assess the GCS in a one-year-old or a three-year-old or a five-year-old? This isn't something you probably are going to have in your in your head unless you do it a lot. And even at our hospital in the resuscitation room, we have the pediatric uh, sort of pre-verbal GCS up on the head wall because in the heat of the moment, it can be a bit hard to remember. So um, definitely the peripheral brain or some kind of cognitive tool for this is, is important. The big difference is in the verbal response, not surprisingly. So the eye opening is the same in the young young child versus you know an older kid or adult the motor response is almost the same. So a few little differences, but I think uh, essentially it's it's the same. So you get a six for normal spontaneous movement. You get a five for withdraws to touch, a four for withdraws to pain, a three for abnormal flexion, a two for abnormal extension, and a one for none. So the last three are, are exactly the same as they are for older kids or adults. 
So when we look at verbal response, it's, it's where it's different, of course. So you get a full five for coos, babbles. You get four for irritable cries, a three for cries to pain, a two for moans to pain, and a one for none. So it takes a bit of practice to be able to do this in the pre-verbal child, but um, having a cognitive tool, I think, will really help. A boggy hematoma is one of those isolated things that we sometimes see without any other symptoms, uh, and that's considered high risk. I want to talk a little bit more about other isolated symptoms. So there's isolated vomiting. We see that quite often. There's isolated headache. There's isolated loss of consciousness with nothing else. And the clinical significance of these is sometimes hard to determine. Let's start with the isolated vomiting in pediatric head injury. Dr. Zemek, what is the clinical significance of isolated vomiting? So good news is it's pretty reassuring. The evidence has shown that pure isolated vomiting without the other signs or symptoms is very rarely associated with a significant TBI. Now, of interest to your listeners, they're probably familiar with the CATCH study. That was the study done through the PERC network that had the large Canadian cohort of children presenting and deciding whether or not a CT was needing to be done. When the CATCH study data was done in the validation phase, they developed the CATCH-2 rule, which did include four or more episodes of vomiting would increase your likelihood to potentially consider doing a CT scan because the reason the catch had had a lower sensitivity than some of the other uh, scales in the first round was because of the fact that it did not include vomiting. In general, it's something that if there's four or more, it's something to consider. But I think another clinical nuance is what is an episode? A child who retches, retches, retches all within a minute or two of each other is not three uh, episodes. Each episode has to be uh, separated by an element of time, typically 15 minutes apart. So it's an episode of vomiting, let however many retches occur, and then the next episode goes on from there. Okay, so this is really sort of persistent vomiting. That's the high risk factor. I understand there's been several studies that have shown that isolated vomiting portends no increased risk. So that's a bit confusing to me. In CATCH-2, they used persistent vomiting of four episodes or more as one of the high-risk features, whereas all these other studies show that vomiting doesn't change your risk. So in PCARN, you're right. They did a subgroup analysis for the older kids in the older group, the two and older um, age group, and did not find that isolated vomiting in the absence of any other signs was associated with uh, an increased risk. And you'll find if you follow the PCARN rule, you know, you often end up after ruling out an altered mental status or signs of fracture, you're often in that second box that has, you know, a list of other predictors and vomiting is there, you know, you know, the question is, is is vomiting on its own going to make you want to scan the child? And the subgroup analysis for PCARN did not reveal that just as you say, Anton, you know, I think we need to remember that the catch population is different than the PCARN population, right? You had to be quite symptomatic to get into the CATCH study in the first place. So, you know, they had to have had a, an LOC, they had to have a definite amnesia or witness disorientation. They had to have some persistent vomiting or persistent irritability um, with a GCS 13 to 15. So a sicker group in the CATCH to even get in to have that rule be derived. And just as Roger mentions, 
you know, then they had to refine the rule because they did miss a couple of patients in the first go around with catch. And that's why we now have this catch two where they added in that eighth element, that that persistent vomiting. But I think it's a different population. We need to make sure that we're applying the catch two rule in a symptomatic population. And that might be where you get that discrepancy where vomiting, you know, uh, one or two episodes of vomiting hasn't made a difference in an otherwise perfectly well kid who's been assessed and has no other risk factors versus persistent vomiting of four or more episodes in a kid who was already a bit sick when they came in. And that that to me is a bit, you know, the difference. I think the other thing is an interesting, I, I was talking to the lead author, Martin Osmond, who works with Roger and I in Ottawa about this, just wondering, you know, how many of those kids got Zofran? You know, one thing is, is that we don't know how many of these kids in these studies actually had their nausea treated, right? And I, I think for sure for me that if I had a child who, you know, came in nauseous and vomiting, didn't have any other significant signs that I was worried about and I was doing some observation and despite treatment, they had persistent vomiting. That to me, I think I would be, you know, I would, that would raise a red flag for me. You know, if I'm seeing now four episodes of discrete episodes of vomiting, as Roger mentioned, then I would start to think, gosh, like what else is going on here that, that it, this really hasn't settled but, you know, one or two episodes of vomiting settles easily with Zofran and they're perfectly well afterwards, I'd be probably going down more of a concussion route with that patient because we know nausea and vomiting can be quite a, uh, quite a significant uh, symptom um, in the concussed patients. Yeah, another thing I've read about when it comes to vomiting is that there's kids who tend to be vomiters who vomit every time they have a little bit of pain or they go into the car or whatever it is. And... There's a suggestion that perhaps the kids who are vomiters, that the vomiting may not be much of a risk factor. You know, asking the parent, is this the first, they say, oh, this is the first time this child's ever vomited in their entire life, then that should be taken more seriously. Is there any value in asking parents if the kids tend to be vomiters or whether they don't really vomit much? There's a study that's just recent that was published in CGEM in November that talked about, you know, experts, you know, saying that it's really more about a personal history of recurrent vomiting. So if you're a puker, <laughs> that uh, you you may tend to be a little bit more, ten- tend to vomit when you, when you have an injury. But I do find for me, if they look really well and they otherwise are totally fine from top to tail, you know, Zofran and a bit of an observe is my approach. And if they settle and look great, then, you know, they go home. And if they persist, and despite that, I just find that that's, it's quite unusual to see it persist. So if it persists, I think it's, that's worth another look and a real consideration about whether they need something further done in terms of imaging. All right. I think that's the most I've ever talked about vomiting on any episode of emergency medicine cases. We're but, pediatricians. Uh, we deal with it all oh the time. All about well, yep. let's, let's move on from puke. And I want to talk about the isolated hematoma. Now, you were just mentioning about uh, the occipital location. Is there a location that worries you more when you have an isolated hematoma? I know there's measurements of more than two centimeters is worrisome. Less than two centimeters is not worrisome. You had mentioned that boggy and doughy is worrisome. What do we have to know about isolated hematomas? The subgroup analysis from P. Kern said, you know, don't you don't really need to worry about isolated scalp hematoma, except if you have a little baby, especially under three months, maybe a little bit under six months, but definitely under three months the location. So there's a few studies looking at this and it really seems like non-frontal. So 
the forehead. Hematoma seems to be less worrisome than he- than uh, hematomas elsewhere. Okay, and that would include occipital. And then the size. So there's a, you know one study that talks about more than two centimeters. The PCARN they looked at a couple of different measurements, and some of their cutoffs were sort of three or five centimeters. So the larger, the more sig- significant non-frontal, the younger baby particularly in those young babies, even with a shortfall, a young baby can get a skull fracture. And often that's associated with a, with a large uh, hematoma. And then bogginess is tough because it's so subjective. You know, CATCH2 uses this, you know, large boggy hematoma, but doesn't give you a measurement and doesn't explain what boggy means. So I think that's a little bit tough. I think Roger explained it with his Pil- Pillsbury Doughboy analogy earlier. It's one of those things like you, you know it when you feel it, which isn't very useful for somebody who hasn't felt it before, but, you know, squishy, fluid filled kind of feeling versus like that hard goose egg that kids get on their forehead when they fall commonly. So I think those are the major, it's, you know, age of kid, a larger size and non-frontal. Those are the big things that would make you more worried and consider, you know, whether you need to image for a potential skull fracture, which may be associated with a bleed inside. We've talked about isolated scalp hematoma and isolated vomiting. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about seizures. So there's impact seizures and then there's delayed seizures. So impact seizure meaning they have a seizure as they hit their head and then delayed seizure meaning they have it later on sometime. How do you assess the seizure in terms of your decision making for, for pediatric head injury? If you have a brief impact seizure... 15, 20 seconds, um, right at the time when the injury happened. And then child is, again, perfectly well, normal physical exam, some time has elapsed. It again, hasn't been borne out in these large studies looking at what the predictors are for clinically important TBI. I think it's very different if you had a child who had an injury, and then sometime later sees, you know, how long did they seize for? Was it focal? Um, What else is going on? I think that that's a different clinical scenario, and I'd be quite concerned about that child. I would very much probably lean towards imaging. All right, so not every seizure needs to be imaged. The impact seizures that last for a few seconds shouldn't really change your your decision-making at all, whereas any delayed seizure, that's what you really want to be paying attention to. Now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade has set up an expert implementation team, ensuring that every new client gets attention from their most experienced staff from the very beginning. They're making custom training videos for all new clients so that their training material looks exactly like their schedule. The portal is very intuitive. I personally find it really easy to use. If you need some help, they offer one-on-one remote sessions so that no matter your comfort level with electronic tools, you'll walk away feeling confident that you can use the system to its full advantage. Check out metricade.com slash emcases for further details. Let's move on to another case. An otherwise healthy six-year-old boy was walking with his family on a windy evening. As they passed a construction site, a truck driver opened a large metal gate which swung out of control and hit the child in the head. The child was thrown back approximately six feet and landed on the back of his head on the edge of a cement curb. There was a loss of consciousness of about three minutes, and upon awakening, the child was confused and had two episodes of vomiting. He arrives in the emergency department with paramedics. On further questioning, he is amnesic. However, he does recall walking with his parents prior to the event. 
In the ED, he's perseverating. Vital signs are normal. Primary trauma survey is pretty unremarkable. Pupils are equal and reactive. GCS is 13. There's a large hematoma to the forehead, as well as a large occipital hematoma. There are no signs of basal skull fracture, and the rest of his neurologic exam is normal. I want to use this case to talk a little bit more about decision tools for CT scanning. But before we do that, we need to sort out why these rules were developed in the first place. Now, we all know they were developed to decrease CT utilization and radiation effects of CT. What are the radiation effects of CT? When these rules were being derived and conceived of, the rates of CT in the U.S. were, you know, upwards of 50% for kids with minor head injury. And so that was sort of the impetus for figuring out if we could do better. You know, I think we're doing a lot better now um, because there's been a lot more attention paid to the fact that kids are more radiosensitive. So um, little kids have more mitotically active tissues. You have more time to develop cancer from individual insults um, by radiation, um, more time to accumulate radiation over the lifespan. And, you know, one of the ways that I, I kind of like one of our uh, radiologists at um, CHEO presents this, um, you know, you can hear about lifetime risk of cancer in children from uh, radiation exposure, you know, one in a thousand to one in 5,000 fatal cancer risk. But it can be a bit hard to talk to parents about that. You know, what does that mean? And I think we all know patients and, and families have a bit of a hard time understanding or assessing risk. So one way to, to talk about it is that like a chest x-ray is about 10 days of background radiation. You know, there's all this, there's this environmental radiation that we're all exposed to every day, but a chest x-ray is about sort of 10 extra days of that. A CT head is about eight months of background radiation versus a CT chest, which is about two years of background radiation. So it just gives you a bit of an idea of dose. And then another thing to think about is that when at a pediatric hospital, and I, I'm sure at all other hospitals that are doing pediatric scans, we use this ALARA principle. So this, that means as low as reasonably achievable. And so a very strict pediatric protocols in terms of dose and shielding, time of the study. And so the newer generation CT scanners are, you know, our, our head CT takes 30 seconds. So very different than the scanners, you know, that we were using sort of 10, 10, 20 years ago when some of these rules were sort of initially being developed. So it's a bit of a changing landscape. A lot of the the evidence comes from Hiroshima. And so it's extrapolated. Things have really changed in terms of the technology and the sort of attention to this issue. I think using the sort of the background radiation kind of piece is a good way of some parents will actually want to have that conversation with you. We should be trying to minimize the exposure of um, children to radiation, certainly, but we need to do it when we need to do it, right? So um, I think one thing is we, we have to like not talk ourselves out of it. If the child is unwell, if there are red flag symptoms, the smart and best thing to do is to get that scan done so we can get the child to the appropriate care that they need. So something to be definitely, you know, pay attention to and use the rules in order to be judicious in the use of the technology. But I think that if, if the kid needs a scan, the kid needs a scan and that is totally fine. Let's get into the details of the decision tools. So there's PCARN, there's CATCH2, there's some other ones. Can you just give us sort of the bottom line on how you use these decision tools in your practice? What is a question that the tool is answering? The U.S. rule, perhaps due to medical legal purposes or other reasons, which kid in whom do I not need to get a scan? 
assume everyone needs a scan. Who do I not need to scan? And that's how the PCARN was done, such that the medical legally, the doctor could say, look, I've done this validated, very sensitive decision rule, and I can be confident that I'm not going to miss a clinically important injury. The CATCH study, and the CATCH-2, as we talked about earlier, asks a different question. The baseline assumption is, look, the kid got hurt. Their baseline already pretty sick because they already had one of these inclusion criteria to at least make me even think about it. Then those kids who had the baseline symptoms assume that I don't need to do it. Should I be worried enough about to get the scan? It's decide to who should I scan. The PCARN and CATCH have very similar signs, symptoms, and history factors. And if you have a lot of experience doing them, you probably don't need to have that printed out uh, list or that app to help you decide yes, no, yes, no for each of those questions. But for those of your listeners who don't treat kids a lot or who don't apply that rule a lot or earlier on in their career and don't have as much experience, um, having those tools uh, can really help you uh, make that decision. But again, I really go back to the point of where are you in your your baseline? Is this a kid who I'm thinking definitely needs a scan? Who can I reassure myself doesn't? Or this is a kid who I'd probably rather not scan. Do I have to scan or not? And that will help you make sure you pick the right rule when you do pick one to use. I find it helpful when you're counseling parents because often they'll have an expectation that a scan gets done. And so being able to say, you know, there was a study with more than 40,000 kids that looked at this exact question and your child checks all the boxes, you know, and doesn't need a scan today. That can be really reassuring for them. I do think the problem with PCARN is some, you know, oftentimes you do end up in that observe versus CT box. And, you know, so as we talked about before, maybe it's, you know, a four to six hour observation, you might treat some symptoms, Uh, you might chat with the parents about, you know, what's our next step if things don't seem to be improving or things are worsening. And uh, again, you're kind of using it as a bit of a sort of scaffolding on, on which to sort of build your clinical approach. The one thing I really like about PCARN is that there's more than 10,000 kids under the age of two in that study. Um, And that's the age group, that's the hard age group, right, that we're seeing in our ambulatory zone all the time. They fall all the time. They have these big heads. Um, They get head injured quite a lot, that age group, falling downstairs. You know, they're just starting to explore their environment. So they're just a high risk age group. It's great to be able to say, you know, this study looked at like more than 10,000 little preverbal kids. And we know these are the things we have to think about. Your kid has none of those. Awesome. And even with some of the subgroup analyses like we talked about. So even if you have, let's say, you know, an 18 month old who has a hematoma parietally, but it's firm, it's small, they're not in that risky age group under the age of three months, the kid is otherwise perfectly fine you're all good and you can send them home with good discharge instructions. So I think that's, you know, practically, that's kind of how I use those rules in my day-to-day practice. Okay. So the bottom line is for the kids who aren't really sick, who you're thinking you're probably not going to be doing a scan on anyways, uh, you can apply the PCARN to reassure yourself and the parents. And for the kid who you're a little bit more worried about, then the catch to rule would be more applicable than PCARN and more useful. I do have a couple of more questions about, about these rules. Every time I look at the PCARN rule, I find myself thinking it's kind of like a D-dimer for pulmonary embolism in adults. You know, initially when the well score came out for D-dimer for pulmonary embolism, it actually increased the use of D-dimers and then increased the CT rate. And whenever I look at PCARN, I kind of think, well, if a kid has anything, then they're getting a scan. 
I actually understand that when they f- were first testing the PCARN tool, that the rates actually went up. And we know that physician gestalt is pretty good. So how can we use the PCARN rule in a way that's not going to increase CT utilization? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the <laughs> holy grail, right? Good, good question. It's interesting. If you if you talk to somebody who worked in Australia, where their CT rates are probably like below 10%, you know, they'll look at this rule and think, e- gods, like I can't start doing that or else, you know, we're going to be up around 30% in terms of our scanning, right? And so it does depend on where you work and what the baseline was. Um, I think it's probably improved rates in places where they were scanning a lot, where they now don't have to scan as much. But it is a bit of a pickle, you know, for us um, in places where our baseline scan rate is is lower. I think one thing about PCARN is that, as we mentioned, you you know, you have your first the first box asking, you know, is there altered mental status? Is there sign of a fracture? You know, those sort of high risk ones. And if you answer no, then you drop down into the second box where you're asked a list of a few questions and it's different if you're under two or over two. And if you answer yes to any of those, then you then you're into the observe versus CT. And I think that's where the variation happens, right? And I think for most of us in Canada, we're in that if you end up in that box and you only have one of those features, then we're observing for the four to six hours and sort of seeing where we're at. If you have multiple factors in there, if it's a, you know, the the baby's under three months and you have one extra factor, or even maybe just if they're three, less than three months, you might actually, you know, scan that particular group. But most of the time when you end up in the observe versus CT, I would say in, at least at our center, you're observing. And almost all the time, that's all you're going to need to have to do. So that I think is one of the pitfalls of PCARN because it still comes down to physician decision, plus or minus shared decision-making with the family. I mean, I would encourage that. I, I totally agree with what Roger said earlier, but you know, it's frustrating, right? If you don't see a lot of kids and you're like, yeah, yeah, obviously I'm going to scan the kid if the kid has a low GCS and has a sign of a big skull fracture. And then I answer one to the other question and then it's saying, decide what you need to do, doc. And it, you know, it's like, what is the rule really helpful? <laughs> you know, so I can understand people's frustration. I think it gives you a bit of an approach. You end up in the observe category uh, versus CT quite a lot with this rule. And I would say that in like a pediatric emergency department, we're very comfortable doing that period of observation in a child who otherwise looks well. There might be some limitations um, where people work where they aren't really able to observe a kid for that length of time or maybe not comfortable. But using that period of observation may be helpful if you need to transfer a kid out to have a CT scan done somewhere else. And so calling your referral site to have that chat and a bit of a reassurance um, around, you know, the fact that observation is totally fine and totally appropriate in a kid who's otherwise really stable. I think that that these are all sort of tools that we can use to try and keep our CT rate down in a reasonable level and not be scanning everybody who ends up in that sort of intermediate box um, with PCARN. I want to talk a little bit more about alternative imaging modalities. We've been talking about CT up till now. What about point-of-care ultrasound? What about ultrasound in the radiology department? Dr. Reed, any role for ultrasound in the mild to moderate head-injured kids? POCUS has been shown to be useful and reliable in in diagnosing skull fractures. This is, of course, as always, operator-dependent um, we have to remember that there's, you know, a small surface when you're, especially when you're dealing with an infant, you're also, you also have suture lines, which can be a bit um, confounding. So it's helpful to look, you know, um, for symmetry using the other side as a control. 
one thing it's good to remember is that you know you scan under the hematoma and also around the hematoma because when particularly looking for skull fractures they are not always underneath the hematoma they may be near to it but not uh, not right there so it's important to scan all the all around and so it it has been shown in small studies that it's good for identifying the presence and type of fracture so good for ruling in as usual right the issue becomes what about intracranial hemorrhage so if you have an open anterior fontanelle and an experienced operator, you can diagnose intracranial hemorrhage. There's a limited assessment if the bleed is sort of near the convexity of the skull. And so I think on balance, yes, good for skull fracture. The problem is when you find it, if it's acute, we'll need to go on to CT to make sure that there's no bleeding underneath that fracture intracranially. So that's the bit of the difficulty. So it's coming, but I'm not sure that we're ready to replace or obviate the need for the CT as yet. I would say that, you know, if I, I can think of some examples of where you might be able to get away with no CT and now and again, we'll have a baby who came in with a shortfall. So what I mean by that is maybe like a roll, like a roll off the couch kind of thing. And we're assessed and maybe observed for a while and looks great and off they go. And then maybe two or three days later, they'll come back with a hematoma. And in that population, and I know even in our group, those babies will get POCUS to rule out skull fracture. You may diagnose a, a small linear skull fracture. And because you've had that period of time, do they really need a CT? You know, the child's been well. Um, for those the, those intervening days. And so I know that in some cases in, in, with that kind of scenario, that the, the skull fracture is diagnosed and off they go and we organize the appropriate follow-up and, and they may be able to get away with no CT. But I think in the acute, it's tough because the operator dependence and the the skill set being able to do a really good head, head ultrasound to completely rule out a, anything significant going on intracranially is still, I don't think that there's wide experience with that. All right, so that's a bit about POCUS and the value of POCUS and uh, radiology department performed ultrasounds. We had mentioned this briefly at the top of the podcast about non-accidental trauma. We discussed non-accidental trauma in episode 108. Uh, that was pediatric physical abuse recognition and management. But I think it's worth reviewing here. Um, Dr. Reed, what are some of the clinical clues that should trigger you to suspect abusive head trauma in particular? It's actually great that you asked this because one of my dear friends is a child maltreatment national expert, Dr. Michelle Ward. And I actually, I spoke to her this week because I knew that there were some guidelines, uh, Canadian guidelines that just got published and of which she's a co-author. So just hot off the press. And they just had their annual Canadian symposium on advanced practice in child maltreatment last week, where they were discussing a traumatic head injury uh, that uh, is associated with um, child maltreatment. So a couple of things that she actually suggested just that people be aware of is that the terminology we, they're trying to move away from abusive head trauma. So the terminology we would use in eMERGE would be traumatic head injury. And then you could talk about any other uh, specific findings around that. Um, and then you could put a comment or another uh, diagnosis as uh, a concern for child maltreatment. So rule out child maltreatments, for example, because in eMERGE, we're never going to be able to write abusive head trauma because 
we would never know without a full investigation what's gone on. So, you know, at the end of the admission, full investigation, et cetera, then the diagnosis may end up being traumatic head injury due to child maltreatment. And that's the term that they want to use, but that's never going to be something that we write in eMERGE. So just a little uh, something about terminology they want us to be using. So there's three systematic reviews looking at this question to see, is there something about how a child presents that should make us think about a head injury that's related to a child maltreatment. And there's really no single reliable finding, but all three of those systematic reviews suggest that the approach is that if you have signs or symptoms of head injury, as we've been talking about in the podcast, plus any of A, B, or C. So A is apnea, B is bruising, and C is convulsion. So any of those are suggestive of a potential for traumatic head injury related to child maltreatment. And so those are some clues that come out in the literature on this. And then the other thing that she wanted us to know about is that many of these infants, if not all, um, who present with what ends up being a traumatic head injury due to child maltreatment have been seen 2.3 times before in eMERGE or have presented to a medical professional 2.3 times before. So seeing a child who's been seen before, that's also a little clue. Okay. So it's interesting, like at the index visit where it's finally diagnosed, that when they look back, these particularly infants, have been seen at least twice before by a medical professional. So that's another thing on us, just to sort of take a look in the chart and see if the child's been seen before. In terms of when to consider traumatic head injury that might be due to maltreatment, I think I said the right terminology there, we are talking about repeat visits and the ABCs, A for apnea and or B for bruising and or C for convulsion. Great. Let's talk about some practicalities of getting imaging in kids. So we've all been in this situation where we have a squirmy one-year-old that needs to stay still for the CT. As you were saying, these days, the CT is only 30 seconds long. So it's a lot easier these days than it was 20 years ago. But uh, any tips or tricks you have in terms of sedating the child for a CT scan, Dr. Reed? I would say that it's not very common for us to sedate you know, wrapping the baby up tight, having the mum right beside them in the scanner, giving them a bottle right before, just as you're about to do the scan. Yeah, as you say, the scans only take about 30 seconds, so it's super quick. If they are really squirmy, as you describe, a little bit of intranasal fentanyl or midazolam or both together can often do the trick. If you have a line because the child maybe is a little bit more sick and that's why you're worried, giving a little bit of lorazepam through the IV is fair too. So I think that there's a bit of a range of things that you can try, but there's a lot of sort of comfort measure stuff that you can try at the beginning to get everybody really calm. Like in our CT scanner, the light is off. It's dark in there. It's everybody speaking in a very quiet voice. Again, babies wrapped up with mom or dad right there, right beside them. And often you can get away with no sedation at all, but otherwise you can do a little bit of intranasal plus or minus IV if necessary. Yeah. Fantastic. Now going back to our case, our six-year-old who got thrown back after a gate hit their head, let's say your CT scan comes back showing an isolated skull fracture. So just a skull fracture, but no bleed, nothing intracranially. Dr. Zemek, what do you do with that patient? So first I reassure the family. With regards to the management of the skull fracture itself, 
I think each center is going to have their own slight variations of, of clinical management. Some centers by policy will admit all for observation. Others will just discharge with follow-up. Some of it will have to do with the timing of how long it was from the time of injury to when you finally have made the diagnosis, and that may factor into their pathways or protocols. But the good news is, most, if not all isolated skull factors, the risk of there needing to be any neurosurgical intervention is, is nil. So that's a, a reassuring thing to the family. Many patients will follow up with a neurosurgeon, though, just to have someone to have uh, ongoing management. Depending on the age of the child and how, how much more growing that child has to do, and what you want to make sure is that rather than growing from their sutures, that child is not growing from their fracture. So there is such a thing called a growing skull fracture, because meaning when the brain grows, rather than the brain expanding, uh, the head expanding from the suture lines is expanding from the skull fracture line. Practically, call the neurosurgeon on call for your jurisdiction and just run it o- run over the case like them on on whether this is a child they wish to admit for observation overnight or or send home with follow up. Yeah, and I would I would just add with the growing skull fracture that's sometimes called a leptomeningeal cyst, which is really rare where you get a bit of herniation of the meninges out through like between the skull, like within the skull fracture. And so that causes it not to close. And so that's one of the main reasons they like to see those kids at about six weeks, just to make sure that the the skull fracture is healing appropriately. And that's what we do at our center. And that's why you need an MRI typically even compared to just repeat x-rays, because you won't see the, um, the cyst formation. All right, great. All this stuff, very good to know. So on the one hand, an isolated skull fracture in terms of the emergency care, we don't have to worry at all about the kid going downhill and requiring any emergency neurosurgical intervention. On the other hand, you got to make sure these kids get followed up properly. Some of them will be admitted. Some of them might be able to go home, but it's important that they do get followed up so that they don't develop complications of the skull fracture. I want to talk a little bit about MRI. Uh, You had mentioned that in follow-up after a skull fracture, they may require an MRI. In the eMERGE, I understand there's this uh, sort of newish protocol called uh, the FAST MRI, which some centers are offering instead of CT. Can you tell us a little bit about whether there's a role for MRI acutely in the emergency department that can obviate the radiation effects of CT? So this is a child that you're maybe observe, maybe saying, you know what, I don't need this urgently because neurosurgical intervention is is not necessarily eminent. Once you get the dropping GCS, potentially need for urgent neurosurgery, we should not be discussing MRI. We should be talking urgent CT as fast as possible and and to get to the OR to treat. So what are the cases? A lot of this is going to be center-dependent. A lot of it's going to be availability of radiology as well and radiology technicians. The things to keep in mind are you've gone from a test that's going to be about 30 seconds to now one that even though it's fast, it's still in the order of a couple minutes. And motion artifacts an important thing. So what is the age of the child? How calm are they going to be? Is this child now going to require sedation where they didn't before? So all those things are going to have to be considered. And knowing that for bone, if you're looking at skull fracture or some of these other things, and blood, CT is actually a bit better of a picture in general than MRI. So it's weighing all those pros and cons with the major pro of doing the fast MRI of no radiation. 
There was a study done in the U.S. looking at this. They were able to have a good, very good sensitivity in the in the 90s with a good confidence interval of that. Uh, but again, they this the study that did do this modality instead of CT did miss some skull fractures because again we talked about MRI is not as good for bone uh, as CT is, and they also did miss some smaller intracranial hemorrhages, and particularly the subarachnoid was one where you may miss it in the MRI, whereas you would get it better with the, potentially with the CT. Another thing to think about is why would you want to minimize that risk? A one-time CT, as Sarah talked about, the you know the the there's always baseline exposure. The child who has a VP shunt, who then falls, hits their head, has a small hematoma, those kids get regular scans all the time for their shunts. And so though that would be a type of child who's already had five or seven CTs already, I would really be advocating to do a fast MRI in that type of child as to not give them their eighth or ninth or tenth CT, which is now the equivalent of years uh, and years and years of background radiation. So I think a lot of it depends on the context All right. So lots of practical considerations there in terms of whether to get a fast MRI or not. Suffice to say that the sensitivity is pretty good in the 90s. The studies so far have shown that you certainly can miss some lesions, but not necessarily clinically important lesions like isolated skull fracture and tiny subarachnoid bleeds. And in a child who isn't too sick, but you think probably does need imaging and a child who you think will be an easy sedation um, and you have everything in place to do that sedation quite easily, then that might be a role for doing a fast MRI. I want to shift gears a bit and talk about something that's been increasingly recognized in the last decade or so, and that is post-concussive syndrome. Dr. Zemek, this is your research area of expertise, I understand. Why is concussion and post-concussive syndrome important to talk about on an emergency medicine podcast? As you introduced in your intro how common the head injuries are, for all these kids who come in with their GCS of 13, who you then scan and are normal, well, concussion is going to be the likely diagnosis. And and it's worth just thinking about, again, thinking about the nomenclature and the terminology, because we've been using terms like mild head injury, moderate, or severe brain injury. Concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. So the brain has to be involved. So the child who has the isolated scalp hematoma or isolated skull fracture, who has none of the other signs or symptoms of brain involvement, it's not a concussion. But once you have signs of brain involvement, meaning a constellation of symptoms in which they may have problems with their concentration, their focus, fatigue, physical symptoms such as headache, those are the kids who you may think may have concussion more than the other. We know that a fair portion of kids who have concussion go on to exhibit symptoms a month or more. In fact, the the cohort study that we did across nine centers in Canada with with over 3,000 kids, the 5P study, showed that 30% of kids still had three or more new or worsening symptoms at one month as compared to their pre-injury status. And so while we call this a mild traumatic brain injury, when you look at the impact of 
quality of life, getting back to the things they want, need, and love to do, like school and their sports, there is very significant impacts on their quality of life, their mood, their emotion, their social interactions, and there may be long-term sequelae. It's important for us to recognize why in the emerge that this is a thing that can happen, because we want to do our best to make sure that that 30% is lower. So what are the things that we can do if someone's symptoms are nine months? Is there a way we can have it last only a few weeks? Think of how good our quality of lives are. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my next question is what can we do in the emergency department to help these kids who might have a concussion and who might suffer from post-concussive symptoms? I guess the the first thing you need to do is figure out whether they're likely to suffer from post-concussive symptoms. We had talked a little bit about this when we talked about physical exam uh, near the top of the podcast um, of adding the vestibular and ocular motor testing. Specifically, what are the clinical features that can help you identify the patients who are at increased risk for ongoing impairment, for more severe symptoms, and for delayed recovery post-injury? The study that we did, we had these 3,000 kids and we followed them up at one week, two week, four week, eight week, and beyond. And we were looking at what's the one month outcome. And we looked at over 70 variables on history and physical. We did what we call the 5P rule. So the first category is their demographics. There's their age and then their sex. And what's interesting, and perhaps different than what we even hypothesized when we started, it's the older kids are at higher risk. The reason why we think they're at higher risk is probably just the old mantra, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. And those teenagers are higher risk factor, uh, higher risk taking. So those of us who have teenagers who do, you know, uh, combat sports or not necessarily combat sports, I say, but higher, higher speed sports or higher activity sports, um, they're higher risk takers and therefore their mechanisms are often higher. So probably more energy going to the brain. Girls have higher risk than boys. Demographics, girls and older at higher risk. The next is we asked a whole bunch of past medical history questions. And of those, the two that came into the rule are not how many concussions you had. It's did you have a prior concussion? And if so, how long did it last? And if you had a prior concussion that lasted for less than a week and you got better, it was the same risk as never having a concussion before. But if you had a prior concussion that lasted longer than a week, that puts you at higher risk. And then the other is if they have a personal history of migraine. A lot of the symptoms of migraine and concussion can overlap, and those patients with migraine are at higher risk. The third category is their cognitive function. We did a full battery of cognitive testing, doing digit spans, memory, word problems, all those things that in the emergency room would take a really long time to do. I can reassure your listeners, you only need to ask the simple question to an observer, does your child seem to be answering questions more slowly? The child themselves are not going to necessarily know that they're answering them more slowly. So you ask the parent or the teacher or the coach. Uh, and if that answer is yes, that increases their risk of having persistent symptoms. For the physical exam, again, we talked about it earlier, that tandem stance, the standing on the tightrope or balance beam one foot in front of the other for the 20 seconds, if they had four or more errors where they were unable to get into that position and maintain it, that's a higher risk. And then although we asked over 20 different symptom questions, the three questions regarding their symptoms of headache, sensitivity to noise, and fatigue were the three that were most associated with 
ongoing symptoms. So in a perfect world, I would have had this workout to add up to something I could count on my fingers. Unfortunately, it was a few more points than that. But using advanced statistics, the, the maximum number of points is 12. Minimum is zero. If a child is four or less, they're low risk. If they're more five or more, they're moderate and then becoming even higher as it goes breaking down into, into thirds. All right, great. So we'll have this post-concussive risk score in the show notes for people to review. Uh, this is totally new and exciting because this will certainly change my practice because I've just been going into all these clinical scenarios just thinking, do they need a scan or not? Do they need to be observed or not? Can they go home or not is really all I think about. So this is a whole other dimension we're talking about. Okay, so let's say you do identify a child who might be at risk for persistent concussion symptoms. What kind of discharge instructions do you give these patients? Dr. Reed? For your baseline concussion patient, it's really important to do a lot of counseling in terms of what their return to learn and return to play guidelines are going to be. So there's excellent resources available for that. And maybe we can just include some some good examples of, of handouts and resources in the show notes. In addition to that, counseling around the first sort of 24 to 48 hours of really taking it easy at home and then a gradual return to cognitive activity as well as physical activity. We also have to talk about when to come back to emerge, right? So we need to give some instructions about what would be worrisome or concerning in the next couple of days that would necessitate a return to emerge and, you know, worsening headache that they're not able to manage at home, repeated episodes of vomiting, a change in behavior, things getting worse and not improving, symptoms they're not able to manage at home. I think we need to talk about what they can do at home, right? Comfort measures, earplugs for noise if that's bothering them, sunglasses if they have some, you know, photosensitivity. They can use some over-the-counter medication for headache. We do want to make sure that, you know, people aren't using sort of, uh, you know, more than two to three times per week, those over-the-counter medications. But in the acute phase, certainly we can use those to become a little bit more comfortable. And those are sort of in the first days of the illness. And then I think if you have identified that the patient is at risk of having significant post-concussive symptoms, then that's a child that you may actually refer earlier to wherever the places that you can refer concussed patients where you live, right? So that's this this gets at this intra, you know, interdisciplinary kind of team approach to the management of concussion. And if you have a, that option where you live, that that's that's a great thing to offer the family early if you think that the child's at risk of having significant difficulty getting better. Uh, likewise, if at four weeks you were seeing a patient who was still uh, had significant symptoms, the recommendations are that those patients are referred for sure. So you can do an early referral for a kid who's at risk, and you can do you should do a referral if you're seeing a kid sort of later on in the course, you know, four weeks, they're still pretty symptomatic, that kid really does need a referral for that sort of whole child approach to um, helping the kid get better from from their concussion. I want to go through a few questions that always come up when it comes to discharge instructions. One is sort of strict bed rest and escalation of activities. The next is when they can go back to school or or day camp if it's uh, during the sort of summer holidays. And the third is when they can go back to sports. So let's let's take one of those at a time. Uh, Dr. Zemek, in terms of escalating activity, first, do they need to have strict bed rest? And then escalate from there? Or how do you suggest it? They just do regular ADLs and then escalate from there? What, what do you actually tell the parents? 
So I tell the parents actually in, in these very words, like most things in life, we need to do the Goldilocks approach. Uh, we can't do the too cold in which the parents interpret the rest as a home jail and the kids in a dark room for weeks on end. Uh, we don't want one end either too cold or the other end too hot. There have been studies which have actually studied the too cold end of this Goldilocks scenario in which children were told to rest extra and avoid extra activities and get extra bed rest. And those kids actually did worse than those randomized to uh, normal care. There was a good, it was even an RCT done by uh, Danny Thomas and his team. It was published in pediatrics. Conversely, we don't want the too hot. We don't want that child going back to their hockey tournament or their football game or doing an activity that's too risky without medical clearance because there can still be that risk of that tragic outcome of what happened to Rowan Stringer and for why now they're in, at least in Ontario, is uh, the Rowan's Law and all 50 states in the U.S. have a similar concussion legislation in which you need to be medically cleared prior to doing those risky activities. So where we want to do is be that just right. And that's what uh, my team and I and others that I work and collaborate with have been working on over the last uh, half decade or more and trying to figure out what is that just right. And the guidelines have actually changed to say it is okay to begin and beneficial, in fact, and the evidence has shown you will do better and have lower risk of that 30% if you initiate a low-risk physical activity. The little analogy I give to to your listeners is, you know, you guys in, in the adult world are treating things like stroke. If a patient had a stroke and was admitted to the hospital, one of the first parts is early rehabilitation. So with regards to the initial recommendations, as Sarah mentioned earlier, it's at 24, 48 hours of initial rest, uh, physical, and then early resumption of physical activity is tolerated. Now, each day should have 24-hour period before doing the next level of as tolerated means, but we typically can let children progress through these steps, starting with some uh, walking 20 minutes at a time. The next day, either go a little bit farther, a little bit faster, and, and move that up. Again, that child should not be doing something like downhill ski racing or hockey tournament or something like a football game until they're medically cleared because all these activities must be, uh, the patient should be truly symptom-free and medically cleared by a, a professional before they're allowed to do something which can increase their risk of another head injury. So it's some rest for the first 24 hours, but not strict bed rest in a dark room. And then after 24 hours, it's a very gradual return to usual ADLs. You know, day two, they might be walking. And then day three, they escalate that, et cetera. They can progress. They don't, like before in the olden days, even it's like a couple of years ago, the guidelines were you, you could progress if you were symptom-free. And now it's actually you progress as long as your symptoms are tolerable and there's no new symptoms developing. So that's a bit of a phase shift too, right? So it gives the family, gives the kid a little more options for being able to progress that physical activity. Whereas before it used to be, you can't progress unless you're symptom free. And if you get symptoms, you drop back to the previous asymptomatic level and then and then progress again. Whereas now it's you can continue to progress as long as you're, um, the symptoms are tolerable and there's no new symptoms. And I'm just going to add one more layer on that, if I can, Anton. Um, as Sarah had mentioned, some, you know, depending on your jurisdiction, some places have access to that interdisciplinary clinic. A lot of these kids have autonomic instability and autonomic dysfunction. And one of the things is when they try to exercise and their heart rate gets up, their symptoms get a lot worse. 
So it's really hard for that child to find what is that sweet spot level for me to tolerate the activity. Um, there is a RCT uh, done out of Buffalo. It's called the Buffalo Concussion Protocol, um, and it's a sub-symptom threshold exercise tolerance. And what you do is you toler- you do exercise to a certain level of heart rate. So it's, it's um, objectively measured, and then there's a whole pathway and formula, and this is published uh, in JAMA Pediatrics uh, last year, and it talks about how to do that exercise based on their heart rate. And then it's return to clinic, do another testing, new prescription for another level and go from there for those children who are having a harder time finding out what can be tolerated or not. All right. The other question that always comes up is uh, screens like phones and tablets and laptops. When can kids start looking at screens and for how long, what kind of restrictions do they need for screens? This is interesting because this has sort of softened a little bit. I think it used to be a little stricter saying, oh, you know, the screen is all bad and you you better not be on your screen and all all of this stuff. So I think you, again, have to find a little bit of the, the sweet spot. The screen is often a really significant source of social connection, um, particularly for teenagers. I have three of them, so I know, (laughs) Um, especially during COVID. So, you know, to remove the kid from school, from activities, from their their entire social life, that's just a recipe for disaster. So I think we've kind of, again, tried to find like a little bit more of a pragmatic approach where probably want to, you know, decrease that for the first couple of days. And then you can gradually integrate it back in as long as it's tolerated, right? So it's all about is it tolerated? It's not all or none. It's it's trying to find the the sweet spot. Yeah, I think it's also when you would ask too is, you know, what's the value of doing some of those vestibular ocular tests? Um, one of the things is how, how well do they accommodate and converge their eyes? Um, a child who's having a lot of blurry vision or double vision, the closer you move the object, you know, within... 20 centimeters or less uh, that most people will get the double vision depending on how symptomatic they are. That's something that if it's a screen, uh, especially a smaller screen, it may cause more strain um, as well as if they're having a hard time tracking fast moving objects. Things like video games may actually become quite a lot of brain expenditure of energy to, to do it. So although they can do it, it may be burning up the battery quicker than they need. And I, I do use that model a lot, the battery, you know, talking about normally kids without a concussion, you start your day at 100% of your cell phone battery and you go to school and you take out the garbage and you go for your run. And as a day goes on, you use up your battery. Well, when you do a concussion, some of your battery power is used to fix your brain. So you start each day at 50%. And if you're having to burn up your battery power by doing things that are less important, such as less important as going to some school if you can, or doing some physical activity because you know what's beneficial to you, um, you're going to use up that battery more quickly. And if you don't do your exercise, then you don't sleep as well, your battery doesn't recharge as as well at night. So you're not getting that battery even up to 50 or 60%. You're starting it a bit lower. All right. The other two questions that come up are when they can go back to school or day camp and when they can go back to sport. So how do you how do you handle that one? Again, the studies that I've shown where they've been withdrawn or even withdrawn extra, those kids have done worse. 
going to school is not going to damage their brain. So I think that's an important thing to, to remember. They're not going to get brain damage by, by learning. No, if their battery, going back to the battery analogy, if they burn up all their battery, their symptoms are going to become worse. So it's about pacing. It may start just with two hours a day with some accommodations such as no homework, uh, no quizzes, no exams, because it doesn't really benefit that child to go and suddenly have to take a chemistry test that they're going to fail because they can't concentrate well enough to do it. But a couple hours a day being selective of what courses they have, um, increasing that up to half days and or eventually full days with, again, maybe extra time for tests and quizzes until they could be cleared. To answer with regards to sport, they should not be doing their competitive hockey or doing their other other competitive level clearance. They shouldn't be cleared for competition until they're back full days at school. So if they're not full cleared fully at school, that means they're not fully symptom-free. If they're not fully symptom-free, they should not be doing the competition. So I think that's a really important thing to emphasize. They need to be fully integrated at school before they're cleared to do their sport for multiple reasons. In pediatrics, like school refusal is definitely a thing. And, you know, if you're out of school for a while, it can be very hard to get back into it. The anxiety and depression around that, the the pressure of having missed a lot and not feeling like there's any way that you can possibly catch up. Like we see these kids with prolonged symptoms, and that's a major component of um, their stress around the injury. Um, and so I think anything that you can do to sort of normalize and get them back into kind of a somewhat regular routine, even with accommodations, that's going to benefit the child in the long run, for sure. Yeah. I'll start with full context, uh, conflict of interest disclosure. Uh, one of my things that I've worked on is the the guidelines. So through the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation, a nonprofit, uh, provincially funded, there is a comprehensive management of concussion that we've developed, braininjuryguidelines.org. Um, and from there, there is actually the pediatric comprehensive as well as adults. Sometimes it's a child coming in with three months of blank, and they don't have a family doctor and they don't know where else to go. So our job is to get them started on that next step and or point them in the right direction of an interdisciplinary care team that really can do that. And that is really what the evidence shows. RCTs and systematic reviews, interdisciplinary care with physiotherapy, occupational therapy, some mental health counseling. Those kids, uh, when randomized to those sorts of interventions, uh, do better than those kids uh, on randomized to waiting lists. And further, they... Unfortunately, this is a, a type of situation in which non-pharmacological treatments uh, have far exceeded the benefits than pharmacological therapies. A lot of the pharmacological studies to date have been really disappointing for concussion. There is probably no magic pill to treat concussion. Okay, so those are some resources for uh, physicians. What about resources for parents? So you're discharging your your child. Uh, their parents want to know you've explained to them a few of these things, but they want details of, you know, back to sport, back to school, exactly what activities, screen, you know, we only have so much time in the emergency department to explain all these things. What are some quick resources for parents that they can go to? I do like the Parachute Canada handouts, the most recent ones that are for return to learn and return to play for caregivers. So that's Parachute Canada is a, a injury prevention um, nonprofit and in, in Canadian resource. So I like them there because they reflect what we've talked about in terms of that initial period of rest and then progressing as the symptoms are tolerated. I, I agree. I mean, I'm, again, uh, full disclosure, I'm on the parachute concussion 
uh, expert content team. Um, so I, I was involved in the development of those handouts. They're really nice in that they're quite short. And as an Emerge Doctors, we really like that. So I think that's a really great uh, short handout. Our guideline uh, that I mentioned earlier, the living guideline, the one through the Ontario Neurotrauma Foundation, uh, braininjuryguidelines.org, there is a complete parent and or caregiver uh, version as well. It's much longer, but that's something someone can download at home and, and use at home and, and read like that booklet, uh, for lack of a better word. The question I want to end with is, what do you think the future of assessment and management of pediatric head injury will look like in, say, five or 10 years? Dr. Reed, do you want to go first? In terms of assessment for the head injury piece that we started with, I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how POCUS evolves and studies to help us to know when we can avoid CT, the expansion of fast MRI and how we apply that in a trauma situation. I think it's kind of fledgling right now, but that's going to be really exciting if that's something that we can bring online at more centers. You know, I think that we still aren't quite sure to do what to do with kids who have complexity, you know, kids who are on blood thinners, kids who have VP shunts, what to do with those. That's a bit of a more difficult group. So what do we do with those guys when they've got a head trauma? And I might add just how do we treat concussion? Like it's uh, Roger's work has just been so important to to get us on the path of really figuring out what to do with these kids because we see many that are really disabled by this um, injury. So I'll, I'll let Roger finish off with um, his thoughts on, on where we're going that way. Yeah, it, this could be a, a crystal ball, which is always murky sometimes, or it could be the, the magic wand wish list. But I know that there's been a, a massive amount of resources uh, put into really large multinational, international studies looking at biomarkers. Um, and, and that can be... Uh, uh, a catchphrase that we use, but there's lots of biomarkers. There's going to be potentially uh, fluid biomarkers that maybe the blood test that helps us know whether this is, you know, is this the boggy scalp hematoma, negative CT, and no concussion, or is this concussion as well? So it'd be really nice to know, is there a, a biomarker that tells us, yes, the brain has been injured, yes or no, or is it just the scalp or the skull or just their other constitutional symptoms, or even their maybe if it's a vestibular problem. So it'd be really nice to help nuance and differentiate the actual diagnosis because then we can better target interventions. So again, biomarkers, fluid is one, one promising area which will really help us not only know the acute, but for those kids who come into the emergency department with four or five months of symptoms. Some really novel stuff looking at either near-infrared spectroscopy, so you know, non-invasive non types of tests to look to see is how is the blood flow of the brain doing just even on a little headband that someone could wear. So that's my wish list for the next five or 10 years. All right. Well, thank you both so much uh, for your insights, especially everything we've been talking about with regards to concussion. I think that's something that at least I can say for myself, I haven't paid enough attention to. And so I hope at the very least that this will help raise awareness for emergency physicians out there just to maybe pay a little bit more attention to the possibility of long-term concussive symptoms in the kids that they see after a minor head injury. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anton. Thank you, Anton. <laughs>